Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. As we celebrate and thank our veterans for their service this Veterans Day, it's so appropriate that we catch up with past guest and U.S. Air Force veteran, Vanessa Sheridan. So much has happened since last we spoke with our guest. She's relocated back to her home in Minneapolis after leaving Chicago's Center on Halstead, where she served as the organization's Director of Gender Equity and Inclusion. Despite the limitations caused by the pandemic, this respected author and transgender activist continues to provide public outreach and consulting while offering transgender awareness training services nationally. She's the author of The Complete Guide to Transgender in the Workplace, the first full-length hard-covered book on this topic ever released by a mainstream publisher. She has twice been a National Lambda Literary Award finalist for her other books, on the transgender community. Vanessa was the first transgender member of the Board of Directors for the Stonewall National Museum and Archives. Vanessa, welcome back to Collections by Michelle Brown. Well, Vanessa, it's good to talk to you. You know, like we were sort of reminiscing before we got going here that it's been a moment since we've talked. You were in Chicago, you were at the Center for Halstead, and you're not there, <laughs> and you haven't been there for a minute. Bring us up to date on what, where you're at and what's going on. Okay, well, thank you. First of all, um, I was in Chicago. I was working at Center on Halstead as the Director of Gender Equity and Inclusion there, and I loved that job, and I really enjoyed my uh, my colleagues and, and, and the work that we did. Uh, but like many people, once COVID hit, um, things started to change, and there were some funding cutbacks, and several positions were eliminated, including mine. And so after my position at Center on Halstead was eliminated, uh, I decided to move back to Minneapolis, where I own a home and have owned a home all along. And so I'm now uh, I've relocated to Minneapolis and I've been working here. And I've, I frankly wasn't sure what I was going to do after I um, you know was laid off at Center on Halstead. I wasn't sure you know where I was going to go or what I was going to do, that sort of thing. And 
um, then I started getting contacted, you know, by people who wanted me to do trainings or who wanted me to do speaking engagements or speak at a conference or something like that. And so that started to build up, uh, you know, a little bit. And uh, then I began to do some work with a group that's located in Chicago called uh, the Chicago Therapy Collective. And it's a group that does a number of different things. They uh, do grassroots activism on behalf of the trans community. They do uh, events. Um, They do that sort of stuff. But they also have another arm that's involved with training and education and working with businesses. And so I was asked to come in and, and work with that piece of it. And so since uh, probably summer of of 2020, you know, a little, well, a little more than a year ago, uh, I've been working with uh, the Chicago Therapy Collective uh, as a a lead consultant, as their uh, project director, um, and it's just been a really interesting, fascinating process. thing to do. And if you like, I can go into more detail about the work that we've been doing. But that's kind of in a nutshell as to what I've been doing professionally. That's where I'm at right now. I want you to tell me about that. But, you know, I remember seeing that, that, you know, that you had, you know, Center for Halstead, you know, and we tend to think of, you know, our nonprofits and, you know, people doing good work and, you know, we just keep going. And people don't often recognize that sometimes, when I think more now because of COVID, that, you know, things happen just like in, in the for-profit world. And it was like, but Vanessa, the work she's doing, it's so important. And, you know, it, it was just like surprising to me, but it also made me think particularly during this whole pandemic time about our nonprofits, our agencies, you know, and many of them who have, some closed their doors, some are totally virtual, some, mm-hmm. you know, lost their space. I mean, yep. and I mean, you were doing like such good work. Did you have, did you sort of, I don't want to say see the writing on the wall, but did the possibility that that would happen um, cross your mind? And did you, and clearly, you know, you were going, okay, I'm going to go home. You know, I've got a home. I'm going to do it. How quick did you pivot into this new role? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, I, I knew that Center on Halstead was, was having some um, well, reorganization stuff, I guess, due to, due to funding issues, like so many nonprofits. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, a, a total 100% surprise when my position was eliminated. Uh, although I will say that I didn't get a whole, you know, whole lot of advance warning about it. I just came into work one day and found out that my position had been eliminated. And so I, I, you know, was laid off that day. Uh, but, um, you know, when you're in the middle of a pandemic, I, I guess you, you need to learn to be light on your feet and be able to pivot, as you said, and, and expect the unexpected to a certain extent. So, um, you know, I, I think we've all seen lots of changes due to COVID, uh, you know, particularly in the business world. Uh, you know, so many you know people started working from home or doing everything virtually, and, and I certainly did. You know, I, I started operating out of my home office and, and doing virtual, you know, con- consulting and speaking and, and, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a, a bit of a sea change, and, and it um, was 
you know, uh, something, you know, there's a learning curve involved in that. And I think most people are aware of that now, you know, we've all kind of been through that to a certain extent. Uh, and I'm no different in that regard. So yeah, it, it was a, a change and, uh, you have to learn to adapt and you've got to learn to kind of, you know, figure out what works and what doesn't and, and how to, how to make it, you know, all fit together. And so that's, you know, been a, a learning curve and something that I've, uh, you know, frankly, uh, some of it I've really enjoyed. I have missed getting in front of audiences and groups to do speaking engagements, uh, um, you know, in person. I have missed that. You know, I'm glad we can do things virtually. You know, that's certainly better than nothing. But I do miss the personal contact, you know, being in front of groups and that sort of thing and working with people uh, on a face-to-face basis. However, you know, um, doing things virtually allows you to reach a lot of people at one time and to do things, you know, across the country without having to travel. So, you know, so there's there's some good there as well. And uh, and I feel like I have, uh, you know, learned a lot and uh, and still learning things. And uh, that's been a growth process that I believe has been beneficial. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm glad, you know, we are like cats. We are resilient. You landed on your feet. That's right. Had a place to go home. You know, they say you can't go home again. You've been in Chicago. You went back home. How big was the adjustment? That was well. It happened so quickly that it was a bit of a, a head turner. You know, uh, it was like you know, one day I'm in Chicago, and then. All of a sudden, I'm not in Chicago. One day I'm working, you know, at a large nonprofit, and one day I'm not. Uh, uh, and one day I'm going to an office every day, and one day I'm not. Um, so yeah, there were there were some, you know, there were some changes. Um, and you you not only have to deal with the logistical, you know, pieces of that, but also with the emotional and psychological pieces, and, and that was you know, not always the easiest thing in the world to do because I really loved my work, you know, in Chicago. Um, and, uh, I miss my colleagues there, although a lot of us keep in touch, which is great. And, uh, I will in all probability be going back to Chicago at some point, um, on business, maybe not permanently, but, uh, to, to have business meetings and to do some, consulting and speaking and training things. So, you know, um, I, I will continue to uh, keep a, a connection with the city of Chicago and the people there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, tell me about what you're doing now. <laughs> well, this has been really exciting. Um, when the Chicago Therapy Collective asked me to come on board and start working with them, um they had never done any major projects. Uh, they had been, they'd done small things, you know, but nothing of, of substance. Uh, well, I won't say that. Of course, everything has substance, but nothing uh, on, a, on a larger scale, shall we say. And so uh, I was able to uh, help them negotiate a contract with uh, the Evanston Skokie School District uh, in, in the Chicago area to uh, do cultural assessment, to um, work with their LGBTQ uh, employees, and to data to do data analysis and then training around the results of what we found. So we were doing 
surveys, <laughs> excuse me, and, and interviews and collecting that data and then analyzing the data. And from all that analyzing, uh, we came out with, with a whole bunch of uh, suggested changes to impact the culture of that school district and its employees. Uh, we, we learned a lot of things uh, that we felt could be helpful and beneficial, particularly for the LGBTQ uh, employees there. And so we did a lot of trainings uh, throughout the second half of the school year uh, in the spring this year. Uh, to bring people up to speed, to uh, provide, you know, some best practices and, and some things that, that they can change to improve the cultural situation. Um, and I'm not going to get into uh, details about all those findings, but I will just say that we, we came up with some things that I believe are going to be very helpful for the school district and the people that work there, and then, of course, the people they serve, the, the students and the, and the families. So, so that's been great. And um, been working with a team, been heading up a team of around a dozen people or so. And, uh, you know, smart, great people who all have expertise in different areas. And that's been wonderful. I've really enjoyed working with those folks. And I think the proof of the quality of the work that we were able to do in the last school year was this. Once we finished out, you know, uh, our contract and, and, you know, brought forth all the deliverables and, and did everything that we were contracted to do. They asked us to come back this year and continue the work that we had started with them. So we just signed a new contract with the school district and we are, you know, just now getting started with uh, going in and continuing the work that we began last year. And so I think that's a real credit to our team uh, and to the school district for taking this work seriously and recognizing that LGBTQ plus uh, employees, you know, are a substantive part of the employee base and that the work that we were doing there is really helping and benefiting the school district. So I feel really, really strongly about that and very positive about that. And the second big piece, and I can't go into too much detail about this because it's not 100% finalized. We're about 98% there. But uh, we are finishing up a contract with a an international um clothing manufacturer and retailer um, and here their headquarters are in Sweden uh, their United States headquarters are in New York and we're working with their New York office but uh, I was instrumental in helping to create and, and negotiate the, the contract with them and once we get that signed our team is going to start working with them to help address uh, some policy issues and uh, do some cultural assessments for that organization. So we've got these two major uh, uh, pieces going, you know, side by side and all at once. And I'm the program director, our project director for both of those uh, and the lead consultant. So it's really exciting to be involved in that. And, and I'm still doing, uh, you know, the occasional speaking and training uh, outside, you know, gig as well. So I'm staying pretty busy. You know, I've been working with, um, some funders, and we call it's a transforming power. Um, and these grants we're looking at, you know, how they're applied. And one of the things that you talked about, how you were talking about how they had, you know, you're doing, and they were talking about deliverables. And that came up, you know, at our last meeting. Has, has there been a way? as you were working through like the standard deliverables that they had, that you recognized 
or identified deliverables that maybe they weren't thinking about, maybe you as a group weren't thinking about that are relevant, particularly to the LGBTQI community that might not come up regularly, you know, where it's not just like, oh, how many, how many this, how many that, how many that. Did you find something that you think that moving forward that you might suggest to organizations, to businesses, as they're assessing what they're doing for our community as maybe new deliverables? Oh, my gosh, yes. Uh, What an insightful question and comment from you. Uh, And my answer is absolutely yes. Um, As we were, particularly, you know, for for example, last year as we were doing the work with the school district, um, we were really diving pretty deep into their their culture there. And as we did that and as we talked to people and as we did surveys and as we started analyzing the data we were uncovering – we ran into things that we simply did not expect that nobody that nobody saw um, up front. And we were surprised by some of the things we were able to uncover and, and to discover and then to share w- with the school district and go, you know, this is going on and you're probably not even aware of it. But these are things that, you know, we believe you, you definitely need to be addressing. And they were very grateful for that. And to their credit, they have taken that seriously and have taken steps to start addressing those concerns that we were able to raise. So not only did we meet our contractual obligations with them, but we were also able to point out some areas of concern, uh, areas that we felt were you know, able to be improved, and, and then um, give them those suggestions you know, and, and some sort of uh, solutions to the potential problems that we, we were able to discover. Um, and so bring those to light, put those on the table, say, here's the situation, here's what's going on, here's what we think you could do to address this and improve it. And they took that seriously, and I feel really, really good about that. That's been, um, I think, a, a point in everybody's favor that, that we've been able to, you know, not create that situation, but to uncover that situation and then share it and then help potentially provide solutions. So I, I feel really good about that. How has your perspective changed? You know, when you're at the center of hostage, you know, you're seeing people come in every day. You know, you heard things, but now, you know, like you're a couple steps away. And, you know, some of the things that I know that you're hearing are from, you know, conversations, from narratives, but you're hearing from other people, from social media, from the news. How has your perspective of our community and the needs of our community changed from when you were, as they say, on the job? Well, I'm still on a job. It's just a different job. <laughs> but there, but you know, there are some. Sim- there are a lot of similarities, frankly. Uh, I'm still working on behalf of the community, and I'm still doing, you know, diversity and inclusion work, and I'm still trying to make a difference. And so that hasn't changed. But I think <coughs> uh, my awareness of certain problem areas in, um, it, you know, throughout the community is continuing to grow. Um, 
And that's both good and bad. Uh, it's bad because it makes me more aware that there are problems that I didn't even know existed before that I'm now becoming aware of. But it's good because as you become uh, more aware and as you you know realize that these things are going on, then you can begin to take some action to address them. So I think there's pros and cons to all of that. Uh, and for me, it, it, it's always been a learning curve. Um, f- from the day I first started doing uh, out, you know, community outreach over 30 years ago in 1991 was when I started. And, um, ever since then, you know, I've continued to learn, continued to try to inform myself and the Lord knows I've made my share of mistakes along the way, Mm uh, in all kinds of ways, but I've tried really hard to learn from those mistakes and not to repeat them and to continue to grow as a person and a professional. And, you know, so I see that happening Um, just in terms of, you know, problems and and situations, you know, that impact the community. um, I, you know, I I don't want to get into a political discussion, but I do see, you know, things happening politically across the country. Um, You know, uh, in certain parts of the country, there, there are more restrictive kinds of laws for our community. Uh, those things need to be addressed. I, I do think that one of the biggest problems that the American society at large has about L- LGBTQ folks is simply a lack of information and knowledge. I've been saying that for a long time, and the only cure for that is education. So that's been kind of my focus and my goal, really, the whole time I've been doing this work, is to try to raise awareness and educate you know, and inform people so that we can, you know, help the fear of the unknown to dissipate. I think the more people get to know us and put a human face on these kinds of issues, the less they have to be afraid of. And, um, you know, that to me is, is the focus is what can we do to help raise awareness and, uh, and in turn to address the social, you know, and economic and political and, you know, issues and concerns that our community faces. You know, I've talked to to people. I said I've talked all over, and I have you know I have friends all over, and some of them felt that like, okay, we had a lot of visibility. I mean, and there's a couple things that happened. We had a lot of visibility under President Obama. Then yes. we had that other president, um, uh-huh. and then we had COVID hit. And many I know that many people said that they thought that with the pandemic and stuff, they really sort of. Well, in part because of the political drama that was going on, where sometimes you weren't really quite sure what was going on. There was a lot of hate rhetoric. And so I saw that people were sort of like withdrawing, you know, not feeling as welcome politically. Then COVID happened and they really went back into, like they said, they went inside because, you know, they were isolating. Mm Mm-hmm. So now we're starting to come back out, you know, and, and I think that, you know, I applaud places that have had virtual pride. I applaud our organizations that have tried to keep going things, but to come back out. I know a couple of weeks ago here in Macomb County had its first ever pride. And Macomb County in Michigan is a one of the red counties. And okay. there was that moment where they were like, you know, okay, we need to do this. We need to come back out and do this. But then that, that concern, are people going to to come back out? How, in your journeys and in your conversations, how has 
the 45's administration and COVID affected us being out and visible. I mean, we've got some visibility, like in TV programs and stuff, but there's still a lot of hate speech. Absolutely. And, and you're right about uh, our increased visibility during the Obama administration. Uh, obviously, that was the most LGBTQ friendly administration ever. And then we sort of did a 180 uh, when the next guy came in. And um, he did a lot to gen up the hate speech. And, and we're seeing that be, being more open and pervasive throughout you know, the country. Uh, particularly in some areas of the country, uh, certainly out, more outside of the uh, the major metropolitan areas. Once you get outside the bubble, um, it becomes even more obvious. Um, and so that that's deeply concerning. Um, you know, hate speech creates barriers, and, and you know, barriers you know create walls, and walls create obstacles, and obstacles create divisions and divisions create misunderstandings and, and that creates uh, fear and, and then out of fear comes hatred and, and that that's why I think that wall down on the Mexican border was a perfect you know uh, symbol of the kind of thing I'm talking about here um, so so yes uh, we as a society ha- are, are dealing with hate speech, uh, we're dealing with ignorance, we're dealing with the fear that accompanies ignorance. And the only cure that I know of for that kind of thing is being real, being who we are, being out as much as possible, and educating people. Um, Yeah, uh, being out is not always easy, and particularly in the more red states, the more red areas, um, you know, you mentioned uh, the, the first pride there in your county in Michigan, and uh, I, I applaud the people who were courageous enough to be able to come out and, uh, and participate in, in something like that, not knowing what the public response was going to be. For all they knew, people were going to show up with guns and start, you know, blasting away, but they showed up anyway. And they did it because it's important. And I have nothing but respect and love and appreciation for people with that kind of courage. You know, I I know exactly because I can't tell you, you know, that, okay, first of all, that's not my home county, but they asked me. So, of course, you know, (laughs) I'm there. And I I can't tell you how many people who came up and said, what are you doing up here? (laughs) You know, and or, but then on the other side, there were people who came out. There were a lot of black and brown people who even just, you know, just in population in general, I did not realize lived in that county who came out. And they That's were like, so wonderful. Oh, isn't wow. that? I mean, it, it was it like it affirmed what we do and why yes. we do it, you know. I mean, even to the point where, you know, afterwards, I mean, you know, Michigan. Well, it's like Minnesota. You know how the morning started nice and by afternoon it was winter. <laughs> and I yeah. was and I went in a restaurant and I first like I noticed like this woman was so nice, you know, Oh, you want some tea? We've got real honey and she was real nice and afterwards she came and she sat down, she said, You know what? I didn't wanna be too involved in this this year. She said, But you tell them, call me next year. And I'm Wow. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know. And so 
Well, yeah. congratulations to you and to her and to everybody involved in that. And I am so happy to hear that, you know, people of color are getting involved, um, you know, and showed up, you know, and, and, and we're coming out and being visible, uh, you know, making inroads for LGBTQ folks, you know, within communities of color, you know, is a struggle in and of itself. You know that I'm not, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but you know, I, I see progress being made there too. And it just does my heart good. It really does. So thank you for telling me that. Yeah, it really did. So we're going to take our first break and um, we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. I'm glad you're back. Um, One of the things is that you're also a member of the transgender community. I think that one of the biggest losses to me during this period was the loss of Monica Roberts. Oh, gosh, yes. And that voice that she brought. And, you know, and we see... I still find myself saying, I wonder what Monica would say. I want what Monica say about what's going on in Texas. <laughs> you know, I, uh, and, um, and I think like the week before then, we had talked about politics and Texas and what was going on and what she was thinking about and what needed to happen. We've had the Biden administration has appointed some great people, but we still have so many trans, particularly women, particularly trans women of color, being murdered. Yes. You know, it's, it's so one sad. Of things, one step forward, two steps back. You know, mm-hmm. I was so happy to see that Andrea Jenkins got reelected, you know. Yeah. Police Andrea and I have been friends for, we. she and I have been friends for over 25 years. And I'm just so very proud of, of Andrea. I mean, she's a good human being and a really smart person. And Minneapolis needs her. So I'm very glad to see her get reelected. Uh, uh, she's one of those people, you know, who it, it's funny. I'll tell you my, my Andrea uh, genius and she'll re- and she remember, and in fact, she remembers it better than me. We are creating change. I'm sitting with okay. Kyla, you know, Kyla. Okay. We're sitting with Kyla having drinks. Andrea comes up. We start talking poetry. She hands me her book. I have, I'm ready to buy it. And, you know, and she can tell you what we all ordered. And, you know, it's been like, it's been a love thing ever since then. So, you know, that's one of the people that I am, like you said, so honored, so proud of her, not only for what she does, but for the person that she is. Yes. 
No, we are you very know. lucky to have people like that in our community. And you mentioned Monica Roberts, and you know, mm-hmm. I didn't know Monica well. We we have met and we we talked, but we didn't know each other well. But I was very familiar with Monica's work, and you know, the the strong voice that she brought, you know, for our out for our community. And what a great loss! I'm sure Monica would have all kinds of things to say about the situation in Texas right now. And so, yeah, it, it's it's a shame that you know that voice has been stilled. And, you know, and, and it also came during this period of COVID where, you know, things that we would normally be able to, you know, like creating change has been, you know, it was yep. mostly virtual. I mean, and so all the things that we're able to do, looking at the good steps for the trans community that mm-hmm. have happened. But then there's yep. been other things that continue to happen. And, you know, I was hearing someone who was saying, like, recently they said, you know, Caitlin does not speak for us. I mean, I said, thank you. You know? Uh, No. (laughs) I mean, but you have people who are able to be out there and they're speaking for us. We've got visible presence. What do we need to do? I mean, why are we still talking about bathroom laws? Why are we still talking about, you know, I met um, Deshauna, I want to say Neil, she's in Delaware who went to fight Medicaid to get blockers for her daughter. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. why are we still seeing, you know, one step forward, but then she just pushed back and we're not, where's the anger about trans women being killed? I mean, what do we have to do to turn that coin? I have talked about that on so many occasions and, uh, you know, I hear you loud and clear. Um, We, it's such a huge, huge issue, and it's even hard to know where to start sometimes with something like this. But a lot of it has to do with visibility. Uh, you make progress when you're visible. Uh, the more visible our the trans community can become, uh, I think the more progress we're able to make and the more awareness we're able to raise ab- about the concerns of the trans community. For example, because trans people are not as visible as we ought to be um, in society, most people, particularly most cishet people, you know, are basically unaware of the rampant murders of trans women of color. You know, uh, that's such a, a, a tragedy. Um, and most people are simply unaware that it's even going on. So, so you know that that's a big problem. That that's about raising awareness. That's about educating people. Um, you know, a lot of it. When I do trainings, for example, one of the things I, I I tend to talk about is how I base a whole lot of the problems that trans people have on the employment factor. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version here. Um, when people are unemployed or underemployed. You know, that often, you know, almost always leads to poverty, right? When people are living in poverty, they often can't afford house payments or rent payments. So a lot of times they end up living out on the street. And desperate people do desperate things. Sometimes when people are out on the street, I'm thinking trans women in particular, they they end up turning to sex work, you know, just to try to get money to eat. 
which in turn increases their opportunities for arrest and incarceration. And, and so what we see here is just this horrible downward spiral that all begins with employment. So one of the things I really try to share with, uh, you know, businesses and employers is that you really need to seriously consider, consider hiring trans people and bringing them into the workforce so that we can address all of these social problems that we're talking about, you know, poverty and homelessness and, and you know, all the things that accompany that mental illness and, and substance abuse and, and, you know, all, all of the, the other associated problems. So much of it starts with unemployment. And I think that if we could address the employment issue as a society for trans people, we could also by default address a lot of these other problems too. So I think they're all connected. It's all about intersectionality and, and connections. Uh, and it seems to hit com uh, communities of color so much harder, uh, perhaps, than, than other communities. And, you know, I think just we need to raise awareness about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, recent, even like basic things like health care, you know. I mean, yeah. there's so many that that make people that you have to live with. It's not just like, you know, oh, well, I can go out and just be me. No, you have to think about health care. You have to think about housing. And these are all issues that also, I mean, and, and not only trans, but non-binary people. Yes. Who, you know, they fit the whole thing about, you know, sure. not being able to find jobs, not being yep. able to do that. I mean, it's so crucial, you know. I could not agree more. And, one of, you know, when I work with, with businesses and, and corporations, you know, one of the things I always tell them is make sure that you have um, health care insurance that, that includes the, me the medical needs of trans and non-binary people. And often employers aren't even aware that those needs exist. You know, so you have to educate them. You know, they're not going to get their insurance to cover this stuff if they don't know that the, the need is there or, you know, or what's involved in that. So you just got to raise awareness about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. By the way, I, let me share this, and I don't know if we had a chance to talk about this before, but uh, a couple of years ago when 45 was still in office, I had the, the, the amazing opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. and uh, do trainings at the U.S. State Department. Um, in the uh, Dean Atchison Auditorium uh, at the U.S. State Department for uh, State Department staff and the Assistant Sec Secretary of State came to one of my trainings. It was really an amazing opportunity. I was so thrilled to, to have that chance to do that. I mean, let's face it, who gets to go to Washington and do trainings at the State Department? But I did. And one of the things that really inspired me was after the trainings were, were done, people would come up to me, employees at the State Department would come up to me and, and say, listen, we want you to know something. We don't work for the president. We work for this agency and we work for the country. Presidents come and go. We don't work for them. And we just wanted you to know that. And that really inspired me and let me know that we do have good people working in government and uh, that they're trying to do their best for the country. And so I was, you know, really, really happy to hear that. You know, and that is really important, you know, to, to make it because often people will, like, put it like they have to remember that within those departments there are those people who work for us. And if yes. you can get that, that opportunity to talk to them, like you said, visibility matters because it's really when someone says, 
oh, I don't know anyone who's gay. I don't know anyone who's a lesbian. I don't know anyone who's trans or non-binary. You know, it makes it harder to be blind to things when you see someone. They might not know you, you know, personally. You know, you're not a mm-hmm. Christmas comic, but they go like, you know, Vanessa came in here and she made some sense. And sometimes when you when you break it down, like someone might not have, health care and oh they have health issues you know yeah, yeah. they have health issues and then you go like oh you know. again it's yeah. about putting a human face on this stuff and and breaking it down to the really basic level and i think when people can get there can go there with you you know and can see that this is real life uh all of a sudden it starts to click you know and the light begins to go on now you're okay you're doing a lot of things now. Are you still writing? Yes, I'm working on a new book um, on personal authenticity. And I'm making slow progress with that. My books tend to happen organically. This will be my fifth book, but they don't happen on a schedule for me for the most part. I write as I feel moved to do it. So it takes, a, it takes a while and I sweat blood over every word and I, I live with every sentence and, you know, uh, writing is, as I say, an organic process for me that unfolds rather than happens on a schedule. But yeah, I'm working on this book on personal authenticity. I've been doing this work for over 30 years and I've learned a few things about authenticity along the way. I've seen it demonstrated in other people and I've tried to you know, embody it in my own life. And so what I want to do is share some of the, the things that I've learned along the way with people in hopes that it might be helpful for them. You know, because you, know, you often hear people talk about authenticity. How would you define that? Oh goodness. Uh let me let me define gender authenticity. Uh and I use this in in, in corporate settings quite often. In fact, it was uh pretty much the core of my last book. Uh gender authenticity is the right of every individual to express their identity and their orientation without fear of coercion to conform to social stereotypes. And for me, the whole key there is if we can get out from under being forced to conform to what mm-hmm. society says is you know, appropriate and, and that kind of thing, if we can find a way to get out from under the weight of those heavy, heavy uh, monolithic social expectations and you know just begin living our lives freely and openly and honestly and with integrity – that's how we begin to come into our our fullness as human beings. And I encourage people to take a look at their own situations and at, at the, uh, uh, the uh, culture in which they operate, um, you know, when they go to work, uh, in, in, in their relationships, in, in everything that they do in their lives, and see if they can find ways to bring some of that authenticity into those contexts. And when people can do that, they find their lives opening up. I've had a number of people tell me over the last several years that they really appreciated you know, my sharing that because they've been able to incorporate it in ways that are meaningful and helpful for them. And that makes me very happy to hear that. And, you know, and there's such, it's such a, not only for you, but to 
for the individual, but for them to understand, like, historically and, and what we're doing. You know, I often tell people, you know, when I see a gender reveal party, it's like you're already putting the child in a box before it even yeah. gets here. You know? Yeah, you're reinforcing those social stereotypes. Yeah, you know, and I know that um, I have a granddaughter, and for her second birthday, she got dolls, but she also got tonk trucks, you know, okay. and she yeah. got maps. So she got books on geology, you know, because she knows she has her bi- box, a bag of rocks, which she collects every day. And it's like, take that pressure, because someone said, why would they give her a truck? Well, why not? You know? Yeah, exactly. Why not? Why not? And it's sort of like when you stop and think about it, and if we really stop and, and think about these things, how it has impacted us, but then moving forward, that's when we really create change, you know, well, because if I don't pass my values or things that I've learned about it on to, like, my son, who then passes on to his daughter, we're just going to, like, perpetuate it. Very true. Very true. You know, I see a lot more parents these days, and this is encouraging, you know, who are raising uh, gender neutral children. Mm-hmm. And and I and I find that to be fascinating, and you know it's kind of an experiment, really, in human identity. And uh, it's going to be wonderful to to watch as those children grow up and see how they manifest themselves in the world. One of my favorite stories is that uh, uh, a couple, a young couple, had a had a child, and uh, people were asking them, "Well, did you have a boy or a girl?" And the couple said, "Well, we don't know. The kid hasn't told us yet." And I love that because that, you know, they're, they're going to give that child the option. And uh, I think that's, you know, a healthy thing. Well, you know, um, I would, in fact, um, this one lady who I was talking to, who's a mother of a, of a, she actually ended up having two trans daughters. Uh, but mm-hmm. she said that her daughter at three told her, I'm a girl. And oh, she yeah. said it took a year and going through, you know, talking to people before she accepted that. And then, in fact, that the therapist said, do you want a healthy child or do you want a child who's, you know, might kill themselves, who would be traumatized to go through this? Yeah. And she's just saying how what she went through with that when the second one made that announcement, it was like, yeah, okay. You know, you know she quit. Well, she, I think she had three kids afterwards. She quit putting the rest of them in that so that they could come to that. Do you see yourself um, with this book as when you when you finish it? And I know I'm sort of like you. Like people say, how often do you sit down and write every day? No, I write when I feel it, once I have these brilliant, brilliant thoughts. But do you see that that's something that a conversation that should be happening, not just in schools, but like, and parenting groups? Oh, absolutely. I I think parents, yeah, it's a hard job being a parent. We all know that. You know, raising a child is is one of the most difficult things in the world to do. But I I think parents need to be aware that not everybody fits into the social boxes that, that our, you know, culture has created. And if your child is one of those people that doesn't fit into those boxes, then you need to be aware of that uh, and be as supportive and, and helpful as you possibly can. Um, 
you know, I, I, again, I, I see more and more parents doing that. When I was in Chicago, I did a lot of work with Lurie Children's Hospital where they have a wonderful gender program there for, for young people. Uh, and um, a few years ago, I was in Asheville, North Carolina, speaking at a conference down there. And one of the other speakers was a doctor from Los Angeles Children's Hospital who works with transgender kids and, you know, gender non-binary kids. And I said, uh, what's the youngest child that you've worked with out there, you know, and family, of course. And, and she said a year and a half. And I said, you're kidding me. A kid that was a year and a half knew. She said, this child absolutely knew they were a year and a half old. And they would say, I, a boy constantly. And as the child continued to grow, you know, that identity continued to manifest itself until the parents, you know, gave in to the inevitable and said, okay, you're a boy. (laughs) Now what are we going to do about it? And that's when they, you know, sought out uh, professional help, which was great. And they got it from uh, the Los Angeles Children's Hospital. So there are, you know, programs out there. There are opportunities out there that were, that were simply unheard of 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, there, there are more resources available to people, you know, for learning, uh, for support, for growth, for uh, community th- than ever before. Uh, the Internet has been a big part of that. Uh, it's easier to to make connections with people now than ever before because of the Internet. Um, and so. Um, I think that has really helped to begin to open things up a little bit, and and that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I know that they have started with Passport, where you can put gender as X. And here in Michigan, we have started, uh, they just put it through that on the driver's license. That they're that's going great. To be able to do that. So, you know, like you said, it's one step forward, another step right. back. Of course, we are prepared for our Republican legislature to push back on it, but... It shouldn't be that 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 huge a you know once people get it and it's like you know what it's not bothering you you know if you want to be M F that's fine you know this is not stopping you but it is empowering and and helping others live more authentically and if you're living more authentically you're living healthier you know you're, yes you're you know. I could not agree more. You know, um, authenticity is, uh, is the word authenticity is thrown around pretty loosely a, a lot of times, but I have really come to appreciate that word. And, you know, you need to, I think, take that word and recognize its implications for your own life in, in what, in whatever, you know, way that, that works for you. Uh, because what authenticity looks like for me may look very different for you, and that's okay. But the mm-hmm. the key is to start thinking about it, you know. And then how do I implement authenticity in my life as much as possible? And we all have our blind spots, and we all have our shortcomings. Lord knows I've got mine, you know. But um, <laughs> we, uh, you know, the more we become aware of the value of authenticity and are able to incorporate it into our lives. Again, as you said, the healthier we will be uh, and the more productive we can be and uh, the better human beings we can be. And I think that's that's all pretty good stuff there. Mm-hmm. Well, Vanessa, we're going to take our second break. And um, I'll give you a clue. Vanessa pre-COVID, Vanessa now. <laughs> so we'll be right back. 
Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. I'm back here with my friend, Vanessa Sheridan. Vanessa, you know, one of the things that I think of, because I'm like, I've done public speaking, I've done a lot of things like on Zoom, where really you're concerned with what you look like from the waist up, you know. So, yep. <laughs> besides having to, to, to figure out, oh, I have to put on clothes and go back out here again. How have you changed? I think... Pre-COVID, um, I kind of had an idea of how this is how things work. This is how things go. This is what, you know, is expected. This is how, you know, you, you make stuff happen. And then once COVID hit and my job situation changed and the isolation thing, you know, kind of kicked in um, and the um, the professional piece, you know, just simply became all, you know, uh, virtual. Um, I, I began to realize that, you know, there are a lot of ways to operate in the world. Uh, COVID has kind of forced us to, to recognize that and to realize that and to adapt to changing circumstances. And so out of that has come uh, an awareness of the need to be flexible, to be adaptable, to be able to change and to work with, you know, technology, to work with people, to work with yourself, you know, to, to, to try to be as effective as you can in the middle of all that change. Uh, change is, is often messy. It's sometimes difficult, you know. Uh, sometimes we feel lost and, you know, not sure where we're at or where we're going or how we're going to get there or anything like that. But, uh, you know, one of the things that, that COVID has taught me is that, yeah, you you can make some changes and and you can you can survive and even thrive, you know, despite having to deal with um, you know transitions and shifts and and you know um, the waves of, of change as they come at you. So yeah, I, I think uh, just a, a greater awareness of possibilities and potential opportunities uh, has been the result of my COVID experience to this point. Yeah. I know that sometimes there is a sense of like being isolation uh, or not talking to people like you used to. I think we had talked earlier and I said I have gotten back to, you know, buying cards and sending them to the mm-hmm. people or picking up the phone. How have you stayed connected with people who maybe before you saw more regularly, you might have talked to each each other more, but maybe not so much. No, how have you tried to to keep those connections, and why is it important to maintain something a little bit more than hey, okay, well here's a Facebook post, and oh, I see what they're doing. 
Yeah, well, I think for me, it's been a combination of a number of things in terms of keeping in touch with people. Certainly phone calls, um, Zoom, you know, um, social media, um, all of those things, uh, emails, um, you know, sometimes even writing letters, you know. Um, I think there's a number of different ways to keep in touch with people, and I've utilized all of those, I think, in, in, at different times and for different folks. So it's kind of a smorgasbord, really, of, of uh, opportunities and ways to keep in touch. And I do think keeping in touch is important. You know, I made some – when I was working in Chicago, I made some really great friends, and some of those people I'm going to be friends with for life. And we kept in touch, and, and you know, we've talked on the phone, and, you know, we've uh, – shared emails and, and, you know, done little zoom chats and, uh, and, and again, kept in touch on social media, whether Facebook or Instagram or whatever it might be, uh, you know, Twitter. Um, so these, these are the kinds of things I think that, that COVID has created in terms of, uh, different ways to keep in touch. And I've tried to utilize what I can, um, and, and, uh, not let those connections die. Because I think, you know, that human touch is so important. At least it is to me. And I think, you know, I think it is to other people too. Um, if if you don't keep that human touch, uh, you kind of wither away and you become a hermit or something. And I, and I, I like people too much for that to happen. Now, have you done anything the, the flip side? I have a friend in New Jersey who I've never met. And I know, I mean, I can just see it's going to be a hug fest when we finally are in the same space. But it just sort of feels like, you know, we've known each other forever. Have you developed any, let's call them pandemic friends, that you're looking forward to that face-to-face? Absolutely. Let me just share this with you. One of my dear friends whom I've known for, oh gosh, 15 years maybe, uh, is um, Jean Marie Nevada, who's the National Education Director for PFLAG. She is just an amazing human being. She's smart. She's funny. She's crazy. She's lovable. I, I just adore her. And basically, we've kind of adopted each other as sisters. Uh, and so, we, you know, we keep in touch on Facebook and through social media and that kind of thing. And uh, we, in fact, we just did a panel discussion together at at the Out and Equal conference uh, a month or so ago. But um, as the pandemic has gone on, her mother got involved. Her mother is this delightful woman who's a former nun, by the way. And uh, her mother has kind of adopted me. Um, so it's like I now have. Uh, a sister and and a mom that I'm not related to by blood, but there they are, you know, and uh, those are the kinds of things that can happen. I think when people are being genuine and authentic and just, you know, appreciate, uh, you know, what people bring to the table. And I feel so fortunate to have folks like that in my life. Uh, It is. I mean, you know, I have been at things, and someone comes up and they go, Michelle, I'm going, like, I don't know this person. And they said, no, no, you know, we're Facebook friends, or, or I listen to your show, or you talk to me. And it's just like, yeah, you know. So <laughs> there are some ways that it has really expanded our world. Mm-hmm. So I agree. I, so we talked about it briefly earlier, and I want to ask you, 
I mean, you had a health scare. And, you know, many of us don't take care of ourselves or we don't notice them. You had a health scare with skin cancer. What made you recognize that you needed to go see a doctor about this, that maybe someone else is, is you know, looking at something and going, like, well, that mole has changed a little, but, hey, it's always been there. I am a military veteran. Uh, I was honorably discharged from the U.S. Air Force, and, and as a result of that status, I'm eligible for care at the VA Medical Center. I go to the one here in um, Minneapolis. When I was in Chicago, I went to the one there, um, or to one of them there. Uh, and I get routine checkups. Uh, I see my doctor regularly. Um, and in one of the checkups, the doctor said, you know, I think you've got, you know, a couple of things here we need to biopsy. And so they did. And then they said, okay, well, we, we feel like uh, this is serious enough where we need to have you come in and uh, we're going to do an operation on, to remove the uh, the skin cancer. And so I had that done uh, earlier this week, actually. And uh, I was on that operating table for five hours. <laughs> it was quite a, quite an experience. But they got all the cancer, and that's what matters. Um, and uh, if I hadn't been doing regular checkups, that probably wouldn't have happened. So I just want to encourage everybody to, first, stay out of the sun if you can. And secondly, get checked on a regular basis. You know, it doesn't hurt anything, and you may discover that there are some problems, and if you find it early enough, you can get it taken care of, and then that's the end of it. So, uh, you know, that that's something I have learned, and I, I certainly would like to encourage everybody else to, you know, think about and to hopefully take advantage of. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you say so often that people are like, and, you know, and, you know, knock on wood that you have that access. Um, do you find in your work with many people in our community who don't have access? I mean, we've talked earlier about the access to health care. Oh, and, yeah. You know, who, who we aren't doing it. What, what is being done? You know, I know like here in Michigan, like I was partnered with uh, Henry Ford Hospital because they know that there are some people who are in the LGBTQ community who aren't going to go to regular hospitals, but they'll come to the Ruth Ellis Center and they'll see a medical professional. Yeah. You know, what about our community? You know, LGBTQ health concerns are a big deal. Uh, and I don't want to minimize the rest of the community, but I will say that for trans people especially, it's a huge deal because mm-hmm. trans people have very specific medical needs. You know, uh, trans people need things like psychotherapy. They need hormone therapy. They need surg- surgeries of different kinds. Uh, those are those are not uh, cosmetic. Th- those are real needs, and the American Medical Association agrees. So the question now becomes, how do you get access to those things? And for people, for people who are lucky enough to have health insurance, you know, that's a great thing. They can go to, you know, a, a regular doctor or a hospital or whatever and, and get those needs met. But if you don't have health insurance or you're not employed, for example, and you can't afford insurance, what do you do? And there's not a lot of easy answers to those questions. There are, you know, free clinics in some larger cities, you know, but not all. And... 
uh, it's kind of a hodgepodge of, you know, stopgap measures that exist for people that live in that gray area, you know, where, where uh, insurance is not an option for them. And so, you know, we, as, as again, as a country, have so much work to do to help the average citizen. We need to make Medicare for all a reality because once we do that, then everybody will have, you know, medical coverage. Uh, we need, you know, to wake up and realize that this is, you know, major stuff that's impacting millions of people. And if we don't address it now, we'll address it later in one form or another. So uh, we have a lot of work to do. Our work is cut out for us, that's for sure. I know, I know. Um, Your book, Transgender in the Workplace, I know it's still out there. Are you still getting speaking engagements, um, referrals from that body of work? Because it was, you know, I know people who, who who have talked about using something like that as they start to go in and do training, and they say, well, this is one of the books that they put on their list. So what's happening with that, and are you still getting referrals? Are you still doing speaking on that? Yes, absolutely. Um, there are principles in that book that I'm sure I'll continue to use maybe for the rest of my life uh, because I think that that's how important some of those things are. Uh, but, yeah, uh, the book is, you know, I'm, I'm very gratified by the response to the book and the fact that it's helped a lot of people and that people are taking it seriously and are using it, you know, as a as a resource to help them in their organizations and as individuals. So, yeah, uh, that's kind of why I wrote it and why I put it out there. And uh, I hope people will continue to to access it and, and use it. And uh, one of the things I would encourage people to do, if you if you haven't seen or read my books, you know, go, go online to Amazon and just look up Vanessa Sheridan and it will take you to my books. But I would encourage you to think about maybe ordering a copy of my last book and, and sharing it in your organization or maybe even asking your library to buy one. Uh, I find that a lot of times when a book is in a library that people are more willing to read it and then, you know, decide, hey, you know, maybe we should have one of these for our, our uh, HR office or something, you know. So those are things that I like to encourage people to think about. Mm-hmm. You know, one, and you talked about it earlier, particularly many in the trans women, particularly many trans women of color, their pathway to authenticity yeah. takes them through sex work. And, it, um, I mean, I know a woman here who is just brilliant. Um, that was how she made her transition, paid for her education. And at one point in time, you know, she's moving on. She's got more degrees than I do. And she went to get a job, you know, apply for this thing. And someone broke up, oh, you know, she used to be a sex worker. You know, how do you, when you're talking to employers, get them, I mean, how do we, not to discount, you know, not to say, oh, tell the trans woman, no, don't talk about that, but to recognize that, you know, look at the person who's in front of you. And don't go with everything that you've read and whatever stereotypes you believe. But how do you look at the person that's in front of you and value them 
and open that door. That shouldn't be something that, you know, like, oh, well, she went through that. I mean, we know all the things that you have to understand about the lack of opportunities as far as employment, because of race, you know, because you're transitioning. We know all the things that often put through sex work, and we know that sex work is not going to be well, has not been decriminalized, and often people who are in sex works are also victims. But here you have this woman in front of you. What do you say to an employer? This is the woman who's in front of you. Don't tell, you know, how do you, how do you tell them, you know, deal with today? Well, I guess the important thing to do is, one, look to see if, you know, what their qualifications are, you know, for, for the particular job they're applying for. But, but two, don't judge or discount anybody because they may or may not have done sex work at one time, because you don't know the circumstances that led up to their being in that position or in that situation. Um, you know, particularly again, for trans women of color, there are so many social obstacles to authenticity uh, sometimes sex work is the only option available. And to discount someone simply because they took that option is rather foolish, I think, because I don't know of anybody who is who has more courage, more adaptability, more flexibility, and more capability than trans women of color who have struggled to become who and who they truly are. Uh, it takes immense, you know, human capacity to do that. And so I would encourage employers to look at that, you know, rather than at the fact that they may or may not have done sex work. Look at their capabilities, look at, look at their courage, look at their adaptability and, and see how that would fit into your organization uh, and give them an opportunity. That's all people need. You know, you, you 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 can either cut it or you can't. Uh, but mm-hmm. but you, there, but you're not going to have the chance to do it if you won't give them the opportunity to get to go to work. And so that's what I would encourage employers to think about. You know, I I was just thinking as you were saying that how when we were talking about authenticity and and you know people's values, and I know I know I had another friend where we were giving this this young woman an award and this woman leaned over to me, this cis woman said, you know, she, well, you know, she wasn't always a good girl. She used to be bad. And, you know, it's like, what are, what are your ideals about good and bad? Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and what does that say about you and your authenticity when you have these things in your mind, you know? So, yeah, it's sort of like, yeah, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, we have a lot of work to do, and a lot of that work starts with the work we need to do on ourselves. Absolutely, and it gets back to that definition of gender authenticity I shared with you earlier, you know, about being forced to conform to social stereotypes. Uh, If we can get out from under the weight of that, you know, being uh, coerced into conforming, and and set those notions of being good and bad and that kind of thing to the side because it's all situational and there's a ton of gray in there, you know, everything's not cut and dried and black and white and people need to understand that life is nuanced and so many people are too lazy to look at the nuance. They want everything to be in black and white so that it's easy to make decisions, but life isn't like that. Life is, is complex 
and, and multifaceted and multilayered and, and highly nuanced. And until we are able to see that nuance, to take in all the different aspects of a human life and then make some v- judgments based on uh, what matters, you know, until we're able to do that, I think we do ourselves a disservice. That's so true. So before I let you go, what are you? What do you do for fun? <laughs> you know, I know uh, that you have performed on stages. You you sing. You know, what are you doing for fun <laughs> during the pandemic? Well, well I've been I've been playing my guitar. I've been singing. I've been uh, you know working on some things. Uh, Musically, uh, I've get to continued to to do some writing, uh, which I really enjoy. I've done a lot of reading, uh, and that's been good. Uh, I you know, recently read Isabel Wilkerson's book *Cast*, and that was just so transforming for me. Um, I encourage everybody to find a copy of that book and read it because it'll change you. It sure, it certainly did change me. Um, you know, um, I love to go to movies and to shows and that kind of thing. And it's nice that theaters are starting to open back up again. Uh, I went to see Dune last week on an IMAX theater, and that was quite a quite an experience. Uh, okay. So, you know, I, I'm just a, a fairly, quote, unquote, normal person, whatever that is. Uh, you know, I, I always said normal is a statistical average. It's not a value judgment. And uh, I I just like to, to hang out and do things and, um, you know, be with my friends and family and uh, just enjoy life. That's awesome. Well, Vanessa, I look forward to the day when we can hang out in Chicago. <laughs> you know, I, I miss Chicago. I miss my friends in Chicago, although I've talked yeah, about Yeah, me too. We're going to go back there. And, you know, we're going to be down by the river having, watching the boats go by and talking or, or walking or something, you know. I've um I want to go and see what they've done on the Legacy Walk. You know, this year they inducted Polly Murray. Yep. Who, you know, yeah. it's like, I mean. Do you know? Was, do you know Victor? Do you know Victor Salvo, who's the director of the Legacy Project? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Victor's a wonderful guy and a good friend. You know, what, what a great uh, service he's providing for the community. It was funny because last year I had a friend who was who had just started to to really, really, really do a deep deep dive into the life of Polly Murray. And I got like really excited by her work, and I talked to to Victor, and he said, and he was like, you know, we're, and I just found out, and I'm reading all this stuff, so like I'm telling, well, you need to talk to once on that, and he's telling me, and it's like, so, and the fact that what they've done, it, and you know, the Legacy Walk, and, and Victor is just like one of those people you can talk to for hours, and you know, yes. such history, such such commitment. So, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean. We're going to get together in Chicago at our favorite. We're going to pick a favorite restaurant, and we're just going to sit there and talk for hours. How's that? That works for me. I would love to do that in person, and uh, I I trust that one of these days we'll have the chance to do that. That would be a real joy. Well, Well, Vanessa, I want you to heal. I'm glad they got all the cancer. You heal. I'm so proud of all the things that you continue to do. Um, I'm proud of you, uh, and I'm 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 so honored that you, you know, if you had said, you know, I just had this surgery, give me a minute, I'd been fine with that. But thank you 
thank you for spending the time with me this afternoon. It's an it's a genuine pleasure, and I just really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you for letting me have a little forum to share some of my thoughts and ideas and experiences, and I hope some of this has been worthwhile to folks. Oh, always, always. Well, Vanessa, you have a great weekend, and I will be in touch with you very soon. Thank you, Michelle. Take care, my friend. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I want to thank my guest, author, trans activist, and veteran, Vanessa Sheridan. We want to take this opportunity to thank all our veterans for their service to the community and the country. Vanessa's book, The Complete Guide to Transgender in the Workplace, was the first full-length hard-covered book on this topic ever released by a mainstream publisher. Currently living and working from Minneapolis, Minnesota, Vanessa continues to provide public outreach and consulting while offering transgender awareness training services nationally. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of a show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.